Have you ever scaled Mount Everest? No? Well, you just may have if you're invested in equities. On today's show, we'll talk about the continuing rising markets with our guest Robin Griffiths of ECU Group. Welcome to the IRP Journal Podcast, where independent research providers discuss their views on asset allocations, capital markets, fundamentals, technicals, and the macro economy, with your host, Steve Edge. Welcome to our first podcast. I'm your host, Steve Edge. Today, I'm joined by Robin Griffiths. He's the head of multi-asset research at the ECU Group, a UK-based global macro research advisory and investment firm specializing in currency risk management. Welcome, Robin, and thanks for coming to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Good to be here. Um, I read over your report entitled The Ascent of Everest, an interesting overview of the current state of markets. First of all, how did you come up with that title, uh, The Ascent of Everest? Well, it's, uh, it's the tallest mountain on the, in the world. Uh, we are now eight years into a bull market when historically bull markets hardly ever go past four years. So we, we've been climbing and climbing and climbing for a very long time. Now, the excitement about getting to the top of Everest is, you know, it's all very euphoric and exciting, but there's not that much further to go until you get there. And once you are there and you have about 15 seconds to enjoy the view, and then after that, there is only one way to go. You've got to get yourself down again and off that mountain before it kills you. Well, and one of the things uh, within the report, you had a commentary on China, and of course, uh, China uh, recently entered into the uh, a basket of currencies, and there's more focus, continued focus on China. Um, the report talked about China cooling, but not collapsing, and, ex- and expectations of the West have been scaled back, but overall markets are growing. Yet you seem to feel late 2018 and 2019 are worrying. Well, why do you think that? Well, we're already late in in the normal cycles of economics. But what stretched the cycles is is zero interest rates and quantitative easing. It's kind of bent the normal short-term cycles out of shape. But when you come to the longer-term trends, no one government is powerful enough to do that. And really what's happening is the dominance of Western markets, of the 100 years ago Britain and then more recently America, is passing back to Asian markets. And we are going to live through in the future a period when firstly the Chinese economy is the biggest on the planet. And later, if I'm, uh, we may live long enough to see India overtake it. And funnily enough, that is the norm for this planet. For 18 of the last 20 centuries, the two biggest economies have actually always been India and China. Um, And it's a surprise to many people to hear that, but that is actually the facts of this planet. So we're going back to that thing. Now, in the short term, many people in the West are worried about the credit bubble that China has got. And indeed, it does have one. And they thought that might lead to a massive cool down. But what they're forgetting is this is not a capitalist country. Uh, Over there, they can do things that we can't do. And the regime has not lost control of the situation. And at the moment, it looks as though the Chinese economy is no longer cooling down to under 5% per annum growth. If anything, it's heating back up again to near a 6%. And for a thing the size of China, that is an awful lot of growth coming through. And that's quite exciting, really. And it keeps the global growth picture looking rather good. Uh, the global economy is probably growing at between three and a half and four percent per annum. 
And it's pretty difficult to feel negative in, in, in that situation. The only negativity comes from certain markets, which by historic standards are expensive. And they're so expensive, you just have to think, well, I don't want to buy it at that price. I'll rather buy something cheaper. Well, well, that's interesting that you say that because um, further in your report, you talk about value investors being punished while momentum yeah. players are winning hands down. Do you think then that value investors should be selling or should be hedged and moving assets into momentum stocks? Well, the, the, the best momentum, uh, value players on the planet are resisting the temptation to do that uh, because they know, I mean, for example, Warren Buffett is sitting on $100 billion worth of cash. He is not being tempted to spend it on stocks at the wrong price. And the fact that he's willing to do that, he's missing out on some momentum profits because he is fairly certain he's going to get bargains offered to him later. And he will be one of the few guys with the money to buy them. Um, also, many people in the fund management industry, though, uh, are losing customers because the customers say, I've paid you your fee. You haven't even equaled the index, let alone made me big profits. I should have been um, in uh, the stocks called FANG, which is Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. But what's actually happening is that uh, so much many investment managers have not even equaled the index that people have realized they shouldn't be paying a big fee to underperform the index when they can pay a modest fee and go to someone like Vanguard, who will just deliberately equal the index by buying everything in it. And uh, what that's done is because indices tend to be dominated by market cap weighted stocks, all the money has been funneled into the few very large market cap stocks at the top. And I've got, so I've named some of them, and uh, there's acronyms like FANG and NOSH more or less cover them. You could throw in Tesla as well. These stocks typically don't pay dividends, don't have earnings, and old-fashioned analysts would, would have rec recognize, but they are in growing businesses. So, And, of course, as high as the share prices go, they become progressively even more expensive than they were before. And particularly in the American market, it's not the only expensive market, but it is the biggest. So much money has gone into the top seven or eight stocks. Uh, more than half of the stocks actually in the S&P 500 index are clearly no longer in uptrends. But so dominant are the few big players that the chart of the actual index looks as though it's almost on rails running upwards with no volatility at all. Uh, and yet it's become, uh, Nazim Nicholas Taleb would call this fragile. It's become fragile because so much is now depended on so few stocks. And of course, the very large fund management institutions have to own those stocks. And it's probably now true that only five institutions are the biggest holding holders of these few stocks. And if any one of them wanted to sell, there's nobody big enough the other side of the market to take the trade. So that um, when the first fang starts to sort of cool down, I, I think you can get a very nasty, very sudden market setback, even if the economy itself underneath is, you know, going along perfectly OK. Well, before we continue, I'd like to pause here and ask our trivia question, which I will answer at the end of the podcast. The question is, what's the longest bull market in U.S. history? Stay tuned for the answer. Well, back to the report, Robin. 
You cite abnormal conditions in government bond volatility outstripping equity market volatility. Well, how should investors manage that? Are you expecting it to reverse anytime soon? Uh, if we get a sudden market setback, and the model would be 1987, uh, that's uh, just to remind you, we were at the very early stages of a secular uptrend under Mrs. Thatcher in this country and Mr. Reagan in America, uh, which went from 1982 all the way to the year 2000. So we were in the early stages of it. And yet we came in one day in 1987 in October and behold, the index was down 25%. How did that happen? Well, it, it can happen if stock prices have got too far ahead of the game and the value is poor. It's not the underlying economy or anything like that. So, and that's the type of, of market risk that we're looking for. And in fact, at the moment, although the US market is the big one, it's only ever been as expensive as this twice before in history. The 1920s at the, the top of the dot-com bubble and the time before that was in 1929. Not a good precedent. Um, there are actually all of the markets which are now expensive by their own yardsticks account for 75% of the world stock market indices. So the whole planet has become expensive at the moment. And that's pretty, um, pretty risky. So our advice to people is, of course, if you're just following the current trends, you would now be fully invested in equity markets. And any market can beat a passive holding of the world index would be one that you would overweight. Anything that can't beat the world index, you would underweight, because that would imply you were taking more risk than you need for less return than you could have got. Yeah, the answer is you would be fully invested in China, India and emerging markets. You would be underweight in the UK and in the USA, even though both of our two indices are at virtually new all time highs. We are, in fact, not going fast enough to keep up with the global average, which is, of course, Asian dominated. Well, the US dollar has been weaker. Uh, do you expect this to continue or is this an opportunity to buy instead? Uh, perhaps there's some other currencies that you expect to outperform. Yeah, the, the, my answer is quite clear. The longer term trend for the dollar is now negative. But in the short term, it has become what we technicians call oversold. So because it's been so weak just recently, it's due for a bit of a bounce. And it might bounce between a quarter and a half of the way back up what it's just lost. But that rally would be most unlikely to alter the longer term trend, which suggests you would be moving money out of the dollar. And exactly the same thing applies to sterling, only more so. Sterling is more inherently weak than, than the dollar is. But again, we're oversold. So you get a rally, but it's a trade, not an investment. Are there any currencies that you expect to outperform, maybe the rupee or the renminbi? Yeah, in the long term, I'm very clear that both of those two Asian currencies will good, be good. So I tell people, if you're starting or saving for a pension plan, make sure you've got some Indian equities. And on the timescale we're talking about, the rupee will also pay off for you big time. You'll get a double whammy. I also believe that the Chinese uh, regime is moving away from a world where everything is priced in dollars. And it, at least a lot of the world will be priced in its currency. And it's determined to link its currency to something real, not just a piece of paper, oil and gold. China is, of course, the largest miner of gold on the planet, so it's not going to run out of the stuff. But it buys a lot of oil and gas from Russia. And it's perfectly 
happy to do trade deals with that sort of country without going anywhere near the dollar. So I think the period in which the dollar is the one and only go-to currency for global trade has peaked and it will slowly fade away. It won't do it rapidly though. Before the dollar, the pound was the indispensable currency and it still exists. You don't just disappear overnight having been the dominant currency, but the trend is now a way to a world where quite a lot of trade deals are no longer priced in dollars. They're priced in Asian currencies, of which the rupee and the renminbi are the two big ones. Okay. Well, I, w- I want to go back to the commodities in a second here. But first, I'm, I'm just flipping through your report here, and I see there's several ranking data sets. I mean, is this a proprietary ranking methodology of ECU? How do you I mean, come up with these? Uh, this is a unique selling uh, part of our, our work. Uh, Many years ago, and I'm in my 52nd year in the business now, I developed uh, a grading system for the stocks in an index. So let's say FTSE, you take the 100 stocks in the index and you would grade the trends into quintiles. And if you only buy the top quintile or short the bottom quintile, you massively outperform the market. And then over the years, I've done that on 40 different world stock markets and the algorithms that we use they're they're proprietary but most technicians could work out the sort of thing that we're doing my great gimmick was actually something called regression analysis Um, and they're based on multiple regressions of short-term long-term and relative strength trends and then what we've done now is to do the same ranking but for asset classes Um, and these and of course it makes a difference if you do it in dollars or if you do it in euros for example This year, the dollar has been weak and the euro has been strong. So when you look at the euro ranking, holding cash was not a negative thing for a European investor to do. It it was quite a good parking place if he was cautious. Whereas holding cash in dollars or sterling, you got punished for doing that. You should have been, if you were that cautious, in gold or something like that instead. So although the methodology for each of our rankings is the same methodology, it does make a difference which currency you're based in. Okay, I see. Fair enough. Um, You mentioned, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, China being the number one gold miner doing deals with uh, oil uh, with the Russians. Um, Your report says that uh, commodities are in a downtrend, yet copper is in a long uptrend. Will the commodity downtrend continue or are we at a bottom with copper being a leading indicator? How should we allocate our assets here? The way my work seems to suggest it is for there was a four to five year monster bear market in all commodities. And at that stage, there was no point being specific about exactly which commodity we're talking about. You looked at the CRB index. It was a major bear market. It ran on actually over four years in most cases. Uh, Now, uh, it's worth breaking the commodity space down into at least three bits. Um, Well, uh, energy, which is oil, obviously, agricultural products, and and then uh, precious and base metals. Uh, And they're doing slightly different things. On average, commodities are still negative. The total basket has not broken out of the bear market yet. But the bear market is very mature. In the case of energy, it is now roughly neutral. The big swing producer nowadays in the oil space is not nothing to do with Arabia at all. It's the American fracking industry. They're incredibly efficient and nowadays they're incredibly big. 
depending on the demand for oil, they can switch on or switch off uh, supply very, very rapidly. So what that says to me is the price of oil will stay in a trading range in round numbers, $40 to $60. The notion that it will suddenly go to $100 is absurd. Uh, you would need some sort of scenario like Mr. Kim firing real bombs at people to, to make the oil price spike like that, because if it went up much past 60 the frackers just switch on and maximize their profits on the back of that, bearing in mind that fracking is a short-term activity. You drill, you pump, and you, you, you move on very quickly. Um, in the case of precious metals, these are now about roughly neutral. In a weak currency, gold and silver are strong, but in a strong currency like the euro, they're a, a bit weak. So, And what's happening is global investors are a little worried about fiat currencies where central banks just print money. And they don't want that. They want something that can't be printed. And therefore, uh, gold and silver are being used as an alternative to money. They are a commodity, but they're being used as money. They're no longer behaving like um, a commodity. Um, and particularly in the case of China, which is the biggest supplier of, of gold, they regard it as being money. And it's part of their agenda to ease their renminbi into being a world-class, if not dominant, but major trading currency. Now, the only asset class in my top quintile of asset classes, which is not an equity market, is industrial metals. And this comes from two separate major forces. One is infrastructure, the biggest infrastructure project the planet has ever seen, far bigger than the Great Wall of China, is the new Silk Road all across from China into Europe. It's going to be roads, railways, fiber optic cables, and all sorts of other cables. And that will use up a lot of metals and resources for years to come. It's just enormous. And copper being one of them. The second thing, which is really a bit separate, is the planet is now moving away from the infernal combustion engine because we're polluting the planet, whether it's petrol or diesel. And we're moving to all electric vehicles and, and, and an all electric car, for example, has more than four times as much copper in it as a normal car. And yet every device you pick up is basically copper wiring in there. So having had a monster bear market, taking it down to almost bankruptcy levels for many producers, you're now on the beginnings of a secular trend, particularly for this one metal, which any electric motor is essentially copper wiring. And this is a trend that every single car maker all over the planet is, is doing this, uh, including the Chinese. I'm sure in a few years there'll be all electric cars that we can't at the moment pronounce the name of the company making them, but they're coming along. And all the car companies we know about will all say this is not just a Tesla type of thing. So it's particularly copper, but it will include metals that go in batteries like uh, lithium and, and cobalt, which go into batteries. But the biggie, the doctor of economics is in fact still copper. So according to my work, copper is at the very early stages now of a secular trend coming off an incredibly low and depressed base. So you get a big surge. We've had the first surge followed by a little bit of profit taking. I would buy every dip on major copper exposure. And, you know, the big blue chips are things like the Antofagasta as a stock in FTSE or Freeport McMoran. There are lots of big stocks, but also lots of little stocks. And, and I think this is going to be a theme that's going to run and run and produce lots of opportunity.
Okay, thanks, Robin. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. That was Robin Griffiths of ECU Group. This report, The Ascent of Everest, is featured in the current issue of the IRP Journal, which is free to download for qualified buy-side. Please visit our site, irpjournal.com, to register today. Otherwise, you can contact the ECU Group directly at ecugroup.com. Before we get to the trivia answer, I'd like to ask our listeners if they could take a minute to provide some feedback and rate this podcast. This is invaluable as it will shape the podcast in the future. And of course, if your colleagues might be interested to hear it too, please do pass it along. Now the trivia question answer. We asked earlier, when was the longest bull market in U.S. history? The answer was from October 1990 to March 2000. The S&P gained 417%, followed by a 49% correction. Well, that's our show for this week. Please provide some feedback and rate our show. Let your colleagues know if you think our podcast is worthwhile. And don't forget to register at our website, irpjournal.com, to get the latest free issue of the IRP Journal for qualified buy sides. Have a great day, and I hope all your trades outperform.